Well, good morning, everybody. It's really nice to see you. Um, we survived the floods. No one got washed away down Glasgow Road. It's good to see. Um, this is week five, believe it or not. Week five of Mark My Words. That means we only have three more talks left in the first half of this series. And it's going to be all jingle bells and deck the halls for a few weeks. Um, and then the hope is that we'll pick up the series again in the new year for another eight weeks and finish um, off the gospel. So hopefully you're kind of getting in the habit now of reading the chapter each week. Uh, and if not, um, why not? Uh, what's your excuse? According to the internet, you can comfortably read the whole of Mark in an hour and a half. It's about an hour shorter than the other gospels. So that's only about five or six minutes per chapter, unless you're a very, very slow reader. I mean, my house, we've started to sit down on a Tuesday afternoon after school with the kids um, and we all read a little bit of the chapter each and then we talk about um, what we think it means and it's been lovely. It's been a real special family time for us. Elijah asked me this week if he could have a proper Bible because we've been using his toddler Bible, um, which has been a challenge because the stories don't quite match up. Um, But he received his first proper Bible this week, so he's um, over the moon elated. I am slightly concerned that my daughter, who is eight, seems to have a better grasp of the chapter than I do. Um, I might get her to to come and speak to you in a few weeks' time. We'll we'll have to see. Um, But this morning, I just want to spend a bit of time um, looking at and thinking through uh, what's contained in chapter five. Chapter five. So if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles to chapter five. Turn on your phones, iPads, whatever you're using. Um, As we know by now, Mark is somewhat of a a hasty fellow. He has a lot that he wants to tell us, and he wants to tell us as quickly as he can. And, you know, the more time you spend reading the Gospels and exploring the writers, the more you kind of get to understand the the style and the personality of each of the writers, because they're all um, a little bit different. Matthew, for example, is very um, calculating. He's very analytical. He likes to say things like, that it might be fulfilled. Um, He writes chronologically. He makes sure we have all the background information so we can draw the right conclusions. That's why he starts his gospel uh, with a genealogy. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other writer. I imagine he's the sort of person you'd want to avoid at parties, um, but probably would have been quite a good lecturer or something like that. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, is very conversational. He likes to say things like, so it was. And he starts his gospel uh, by saying, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. I imagine he was a bit of a charmer, you know, had a bit of a way with words. A bit of a historian too, he likes his his details, he's researched well, but he's not boring. Luke likes to tell us um, about Jesus' emotional journey. He explores his childhood with us. I imagine he'd have been a great dinner guest. Lots to say, lots of interesting information. John, on the other hand, writes... From the heart, his is a deeply personal gospel. He was the only disciple, gospel writer that was there, and he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. It was me, guys. He loved me. (laughs) And he wants you to know that that Jesus loves you as well, and he's not bothered about chronology or presenting an orderly account. He's a storyteller. He begins his gospel with the creation of everything, and then says, and by the way, the one who created everything also came to earth. 
also came to save you. He has all those lovely I am statements revealing different things about Jesus. I imagine he'd have been a great mate, someone you could go down the pub with and, and have a beer with. However, Mark, Mark, as we've seen, is somewhat impetulant. He, um, he's uh, not really worried about details. He's not going to paint you a, a pretty word um, picture. He's got things he wants to tell you and nothing is going to stop him from getting his message across. I imagine he'd have been quite hard to get a word in edgeways if you were talking to him. He's sort of got verbal diarrhoea. We're only in chapter 5, four chapters, and Mark has already told us about Jesus' baptism, Jesus' testing in the wilderness, Jesus' preaching, Jesus' calling the disciples, Jesus' praying, Jesus' forgiving sins, Jesus' driving out impure spirits, Jesus' healing Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus' healing a man with leprosy, Jesus' healing a paralyzed man, Jesus' healing a man with a shriveled hand, Jesus' eating with sinners, Jesus' appointing the apostles, Jesus' putting ahead with the Pharisees, Jesus' calming a storm, and last week, four of Jesus' parables. The dude has barely come up for air since we started. However, however, as we arrive at chapter 5, Mark seems to pause. He seems to slow down a little bit. Maybe take a sip of water, catch his breath. It's like he wants us to really focus in on these few stories that he's about to tell us, these next three stories. And there are only three, which is unusual for Mark. One about a possessed man, another about a sick woman, and another about the father of a dying child. Three characters who find themselves in the most desperate of situations imaginable, left with no hope. That is, until Jesus shows up. Almost Sounds like the tagline for a new Netflix TV series, doesn't it? Chapter 5, The Return of Hope. <laughs> and I've got to say, these are some really dramatic stories. They're certainly um, the most uh, dynamic ones that were yet, the most cinematic. I'm not going to show you um, the video this week quite deliberately because as you read the chapter for yourselves this week, I want you to picture the stories in your own mind. Mark, for once, gives us plenty of detail and allows us to do that for ourselves. So, first things first, who are these stories about? Let's spend a few minutes meeting the characters. Firstly, there is the man who was possessed with an impure spirit. And actually, there's a little bit of a plot twist here, isn't there? Because it doesn't turn out to be one demon, but it turns out to be many demons. A whole legion of impure spirits spirits. The Roman legion consisted of around 5,000 men, so he was riddled with them. How awful it must have been for him. What do we know about him? We know that he lived among the tombs, and this isn't a graveyard like we might imagine, but really a series of caves that were used for storing the dead. And in ancient times, what they would do is they would wrap a corpse in um, cloth and they would lay them to rest in a tomb um, to decompose, and eventually they would come back and um, place the bones into a sealed box. It's really not the kind of place that you would want to live. Imagine the, the smell, for one thing. Constantly surrounded by death. We know that the people of the region had tried to chain him up. And we're not really told why exactly, maybe to prevent him from hurting himself, or maybe just to keep him away. 
feared that the madness might spread. But it says he'd broken free. It says that no one had the strength to subdue him. And so he wandered about the caves, these, these tombs crying and shouting in pain as he cut himself with sharp stones. I imagine the children of the region were told to stay away. There were probably rumours and tales of how the man in the tombs ended up the way he did. How the man became a monster. Something to be feared. Something to be kept at arm's length. But what happened to him? How did he end up like this? What could have possibly occurred in this man's past to leave him in such a state? How did he become so riddled with impure spirits? What are impure spirits? I suppose you might think of shows like Most Haunted or Ghost Watch or films like The Exorcist and conjure up our own ideas. And ironically, that's pretty much what the people of the first century did as well. Much Jewish thought concerning demons or evil spirits doesn't come from scripture, but from other popular writings that existed at the time. Jewish rabbis had their own ideas and opinions of what they were and how they could be controlled and whether they were good or bad or whether they were useful or not. An opinion um, was divided. Actual references, malic beings or demons in the Old Testament um, are few and far between. In fact, there's no word for demon in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. When the idea of a demonic force is conveyed in the Old Testament, it's normally in the context of a false idol or a false <coughs> god. A spirit that does not come from Yahweh, the God of Israel. For example, Deuteronomy 32, 16, 17 says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abomination that they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Sometimes the Hebraic word is translated as demons, other times it's false idols or false gods. Remember a couple of weeks ago in Mark 3, Jesus is accused of being in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. If you look in 2 Kings 1, you can find a reference to Beelzebub, the false god of Ekron. And so we, we see from Scripture that impure spirits and demonic forces have their roots in false idols and improper worship. The man had opened himself up to the influence of evil in his life and he had allowed him to take a hold of him. Now I just want to um, pause for a minute and say that sometimes in Christian circles there can be a lot of confusion over whether someone has a demon, a demonic presence in their life or not. And sometimes people assume, for example, the issues of mental health are demonic manifestations when they're not. And ultimately that can be unhelpful for the person who is suffering. Some people think that they see demons and the demonic wherever they go, while other people think that, well, it's all just kind of made up. It's just nonsense, bunkum. That everything can kind of be explained some other way. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not either or, but both and. Christian author C.S. Lewis puts it well when he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think sometimes people can open themselves up to demonic forces entering their lives, but as Christians we have nothing to fear because we have the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that to you this morning. 
But whatever we might believe about the demonic, something that we should all be aware of is that anything that we turn to outside of God has the potential to become a controlling force in our lives. Anything that we turn to outside of God has the potential to become a controlling force in our lives. For example, um, excessive drinking. People who suffer alcoholism have an uncontrollable desire to drink. They prioritize it above all obligations, including work and family. The same is true of um, drug and substance misuse. It can become all-consuming. Pornography and sex addiction. There are so many studies coming out now that highlight the negative effects of pornography on our brains. It can actually control us to the point where we're unable to function normally in a healthy, loving relationship. Gambling addiction leads people into financial crisis. Again, controls them, causes them to lose their homes and their security and hurt the ones they love. Food addiction, constantly eating for pleasure to the point where we become unhealthy. Self-image, social media. People go to extreme lengths to change the way they look and become addicted to other people's opinions of them. Video games. When I used to work in schools, sometimes students would come in and fall asleep at their desks. They'd spent six, seven, eight hours through the night playing video games. Are these things demonic? I'm not sure. Do they control you? Do they cause you to act in unusual and aggressive ways? To hurt yourself and those around you? Absolutely. Do they prevent you from recognizing yourself as a beloved child of God? I think they do. And do they take worship away from God and give it to false idols? Do we sacrifice our time, our money, and our energy to them? Yeah. Yeah, we do. You know, later on, the Apostle Paul wrestles with this idea when he's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Don't let these things control you. Don't let these things have mastery over you. This man's life here in in chapter 5 was ruined. He was being controlled by forces that he had allowed into his world. And wherever they had come from, however they had manifested, they had left him desperate. Cut off from his family and his friends in a burial site essentially waiting to die. The second character we meet in this chapter is another man. And really this guy is on the opposite end of the social spectrum. He's a synagogue leader. A synagogue leader. Um, A synagogue leader's job was to to kind of look after the building, um, to arrange worship services. It was kind of like a modern day um, pastor or vicar. We know that he was well liked in his community. He was a popular man. We know this because Mark goes as far as to include his name, Jarius, which means God enlightens. Pretty good name for a pastor. We also know that he had a family. He had a wife and a a daughter. And I imagine for him, it seemed as though his life was going pretty well. They had all they needed to be happy, all they needed to be content, right up until the time that his daughter fell ill. Seriously ill. The kind of illness that she was unlikely to recover from. And I can imagine as a father myself that Jarius tried everything he could do to help her. Doctors, healers, of course, prayers at the, the synagogue. But the truth of it was that she was getting worse day by day by day. And it seemed as though his whole life was beginning to come apart. 
things he took for granted were beginning to crumble down around him. And you know, life can be a little bit like that at times, can't it? Things can be going perfectly well. We can feel as though we have everything we need to be happy and everything we need to be content. And then something changes. Our loved one falls sick. We're involved in an accident. A relationship that we thought was stable comes to an end. There's an unexpected bill. There's the loss of a job. And suddenly it can feel as though everything is crumbling down around us. Like our whole life has been set off course and we can begin to feel lost and and rudderless. And really this was the situation for Jarius. He was desperate. Desperate knowing that he was about to lose his daughter. The third character in the story is a woman. And we're not really told a lot about this woman in the chapter other than that she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 long, difficult years of constant suffering. Mark tells us that she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Interestingly, um, Luke, who was a medical doctor, leaves that sentence out of his gospel. Um, It's funny, isn't it? But he says she spent all she had. She spent all she had trying to get better. There was no NHS in the first century. And instead of getting better, she grew worse. I imagine she felt cheated, like she'd been shoved from pillar to post and gotten nothing for it. But worse than that, because of her illness, this woman was labelled as unclean. She was labelled as unclean. It meant that anything she touched would also become unclean. That she would need to have kept herself isolated from others. That she wouldn't be able to go out with her her friends and socialise, maybe as she had done in the past. That she wouldn't be able to marry or attend services at the the synagogue, or do any of the normal day-to-day activities that those around her took for granted. I imagine she felt frustrated, upset. I wonder even if she, from time to time, thought whether her life was worth living. Again, there are many people today who do not get to live a normal life, whether that's through illness or infirmity or issues of mental health, people can end up feeling isolated and alone, feeling as though the life they have is not the life they wanted. We can end up feeling trapped in our own bodies, feeling like maybe the suffering isn't going to end. And this woman was desperate, desperate for her life to change, desperate to be made well again. So here we have these three characters, each of them arriving at their own point of desperation for very different reasons. The first man was desperate because of the darkness he'd been exposed to in his past that was now controlling him. Jarius was desperate because his daughter was ill and, in fact, was about to die. He had nowhere else to turn. And this woman was desperate because of the many, many years that she spent in isolation and illness. People had tried to help, but ultimately had left her in a worse condition than she'd been at the start. Not the cheeriest of stories, are they? But I do think they paint a realistic view of many of the situations that we find ourselves in today. 
I imagine you can relate to one or more of these situations in your own life. Certainly, as I read them this week and prepared, people came to my mind that I know and love and care about. And you know, even as Christians, we're not immune from this. We're not immune from this stuff. We too can expose ourselves to sin and darkness if we want. We can experience life-altering situations that seem to come at us out of nowhere and leave us picking up the pieces. And we can suffer illnesses that last for years and years and years and leave us wondering, will, will this ever end? Will I get better? Will I be okay? But this isn't chapter 5, the tale of the desperate people. This is Mark 5, the return of hope. So what happens to them? What happens to these desperate people? Well, they meet Jesus. These desperate people all meet Jesus. In fact, they seek him out. And each of them, they approach him in a very different way. The man who was possessed, we're told, in verse 6, runs and falls on his knees in front of him and shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. If we read this account in um, Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us that the guy was also naked. I don't know about you, but if a guy with no clothes on ran at me out of a tomb screaming, What do you want? I'm fairly certain I would turn and run in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's a little bit aggressive, isn't it? Just a smidge. But Jesus is a bit braver than I am. He says, well, what's your name? Which is a, sort of a calm response, given the situation. Uh, my name is Legion, he replies, for we are many. Which is a super creepy thing to say. Right? I think that's creepy. And Jesus remains undeterred. No amount of problems are going to phase him. He asks the demons to leave. They beg to go into some pigs. Jesus gives them permission to do so. The pigs all jump off a cliff and drown. So it's a bit weird. Sometimes the Bible's a bit weird. That's okay. It was written a really long time ago. Um, I think this probably happened. I don't think this is a, a metaphor or anything like that. But I think the reason it happened this way rather than something less dramatic, is because it demonstrates certain things to those that were watching. Like the man himself, the disciples, others in the region. Let me give you some examples. Um, pigs were considered to be unclean animals. By sending the demons into the unclean animals, Jesus is demonstrating the nature of the spirits and showing that the man has been purified. The fact that the pigs react in the way they do offers proof both to the man who was possessed and those watching that a change had taken place. And the fact that there was a whole herd of pigs gives us a clue as to the scale of the problem. Another popular view at the time was that demonic forces were destroyed by water. The fact that the pigs jump into water and drown would have demonstrated a clear end to the nefarious purposes of the spirits. You see, what had happened was really just a physical representation of something that had taken place in the spiritual realm. Jesus had freed him from the controlling forces in his life by sending them to their destruction. He'd freed him from the past. He'd freed him from the darkness that had manifested itself. And he wanted everyone in attendance to become aware of the change that had taken place. I mean, he could have just said, be gone. But how would anyone have known that things were different? unless they spent time with the man, and we already know they were not prepared to do that. They wanted nothing to do with him, but now the story had changed. 
Now there would be new rumors. The man was no longer a monster, but the monster had been destroyed by Jesus, bound in the unclean swine and sentenced to death in the ocean. Sort of a cool story, isn't it? It's the sort of story that you would want to hear firsthand down the pub. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus tells the man to do. He says, go and tell others what's happened to you. And this story really is a profound statement on the authority of Jesus to free us from the darkness and to free us from our past. The second approach to Jesus in this chapter is not an aggressive one, but more of an entreatment. We're told that Jairus spots Jesus in the crowd, that he falls at his feet and that he pleads with him earnestly. He says, my, my little daughter, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she'll be healed and will live. We're told later in the chapter the girl was 12. That's the age of adulthood in Orthodox Judaism, but she was still his little girl, his precious daughter. He must have had great faith that, that Jesus could do something. And when Jesus agrees to go with him, he must have been so relieved. Hope renewed a chance that this story might have a happy ending, but as they're on the way, Jairus receives the news that it's too late. His daughter has passed. A moment of shock and horror. The, the realisation that the worst thing that could have happened has happened. It's the news that no parent ever wants to hear. But Jesus doesn't flinch. In the same way that he doesn't back down when the demon-possessed man runs at him, he refuses to back down now, even in the face of death. I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word badass in church, but I think it describes Jesus really well in this chapter. Mark actually says that Jesus ignores them. He doesn't even acknowledge their message of gloom. Instead, he turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I've got you. I've got this. And Jesus is not even, not phased by death in the slightest. He's undeterred. When all hope is gone, Jesus remains steadfast and resolute. Even when he arrives at the house and is laughed at for suggesting the girl was merely asleep, it doesn't bother him because he knows a deeper truth. He says to the man's daughter, little girl, I say to you, get up. And his words bring her back to life. Incredible. Incredible. My favorite thing about the story, though, is at the very end, he says to Jarius, he says, would you just go and fix her a snack? Go and make her some food. So normal, isn't it? But... The point is that this man gets to be a father again. How beautiful is that? It must have meant everything to Jairus. The third person in the chapter approaches Jesus, not with aggression or solicitation, but in secret. Told that she hides herself in a crowd and, and deliberately approaches him from behind like a ninja. Her thought process is that if she can just kind of touch the edge of her, her cloak, then that would be enough. That would be okay. That would be enough for her to receive her healing. Again, wow, amazing faith that she must have had. And we see that her faith is awarded. Mark says as soon as she gets to him, that the, the bleeding stops. And I guess if you've been suffering for 12 years or something, you would notice a change, wouldn't you? But then Jesus stops, turns around to face the crowd, of which she was a part, and says, Who touched my clothes. 
Imagine just for a minute that you were that woman. How would you have felt in that moment? All these years of isolation and loneliness, and now this famous rabbi, this teacher, this, this healer is calling you out of the crowd. What's worse than that, he's standing next to Jarius, the leader of the synagogue, a place you were forbidden to attend because of your illness. What would he think? What about the crowd that you're a part of? What would they think? Knowing that you'd snuck in, that you may have touched them and, and made them unclean as well. Do you speak up or remain silent? What if he's mad at you? What if he wants to take away your healing because you didn't ask permission? Panic would begin to set in. Jesus follows. They try and get Jesus to, to move on. They tell him to stop being silly, but he remains rooted to the spot looking for you. Jesus is steadfast again. Mark tells us that she responds in fear. She falls at his feet, confesses what she's done and why she did it. The whole truth, he says. And Jesus' response is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. He says, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He doesn't call anyone else daughter that we know of. It's this incredible term of endearment and, and, and love. And then in front of everyone, he pronounces her healing, not because she touched his cloak, but because she had faith in him. And what he's doing is restoring her in the eyes of those there. No longer would she be considered unclean or an outcast, but be, to be tr someone to be treated like a daughter. It's a real tearjerker. He could have kept moving. He could have allowed her to take her, her healing and, and, and leave, but he wants to give her more. He wants her to know how he feels about her. And he wants the world to know that she is not unclean anymore. And so here are these three people, each with a different approach to Jesus and each receiving way more than they bargained for. Way more. The demonic forces at work in the first man just want to be left alone. What do you want from me, Jesus? Don't send us away, they beg. But the man was at their mercy. And so Jesus freed him from their control. He gave him back his life, his own authority, and brought him to a place where he could make a decision for Jesus. No longer would he be controlled by the past. John says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jarius just wanted his little girl to be made well again. But Jesus taught him that he can be trusted not only with life, but in death as well. That even when all hope is gone, even when life gets to its bleakest point, Jesus is still steadfast. And the woman wanted to not to have to suffer day in, day out, but Jesus wanted to give her back her community. He wanted to show her kindness. He wanted to see herself not as a, a social outcast or a reject, but a beloved daughter. A beloved daughter. Do you see how complete Jesus' restoration of us is? Do you see how far Jesus is prepared to go for you? You see, desperation comes to all of us. At one time or another in our lives, we will become desperate. But if desperation is directed towards Jesus, it can lead to restoration. 
desperation directed towards Jesus can lead to restoration. One other thing I want to tell you about these stories before I finish this morning. And I'm going to draw it to close. I wonder if the band actually want to just start making my way up. In every story in this chapter, in each case, Jesus is required to be somewhere or come into contact with something that should have made him unclean according to ceremonial law. That was a big issue for people back then. You couldn't be near or touch tombs or graves. You, you couldn't touch people that were, were bleeding. You couldn't be near or touch a corpse or a body because it would make you unclean. But notice that in every single story, Jesus is not made unclean by the people. In fact, the opposite is true. They are made clean by being with him. They are made clean by being with him. They are restored. They are fixed. They are put back together. Here's the point. Jesus doesn't care how dirty you are. Jesus doesn't care how dirty you are. He doesn't care what you've done in the past. Even if that past was just this past week. He doesn't care what evil you've allowed into your life, what idolatry that you've allowed into your life. He isn't even interested in other people's opinions of you. Even if other people think that you are not worth anything. Even if other people think that you are unclean, you cannot be too unclean for Jesus. If Mark is driving at any point in this chapter, I think it's that. And this morning, some of us might have come to think of ourselves as unworthy, as unclean, beyond hope, not worth a second look. But you know what? Jesus calls us sons and daughters. Jesus restores our hope. Jesus gives us another chance to choose him. And he reminds us that even death for him is not an end. He's steadfast in his love and his mercy and his grace. He's not backing down. Even if this morning we might want to run at him in anger, like the man out of the tombs, he's not backing down. He's not giving up when death is staring him in the face. And you know what? He's not prepared to move on when he knows that we need a touch from him. He's calling us out of the crowd. What a beautiful saviour we serve. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Let's just close our eyes and just be still for a minute. I want to leave a little room for us to respond to this message in our hearts today. I don't know what you've come in with today. I don't know if you're in that, that, that place of desperation yourself. For whatever reason. Maybe it's something that you feel has a control in your life. Something that you just keep giving into. And you know that you should be stronger. Or you feel you should be stronger. I don't know whether it's a situation that's just occurred in your life and it seems to have come out of nowhere. 
And it's all you can think about it. And it feels like all that stability and that, that, that hope has just fallen down. Or maybe it's just that things have been bad for a long time. It's just that ongoing suffering, that, 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 that situation that wears us down where we begin to question, does he really love me? Does he really care about me? Is he even there? Whatever point of desperation you may have come to in your life this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is here for you. I want you to know that he's steadfast, that he is not backing down, that he is not turning around, that he wants to restore your hope this morning. So let's just be still. Let's just let the Holy Spirit work for a minute. Father, we invite you here. God, would you just begin to meet us in this place?